This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Welcome once again to Evidence for Faith. This is the show where we give you the evidence to show that Christianity is true. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Kirk Hastings. You can check us out on our website at evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com, where you can listen to past podcasts or you can listen to podcasts on iTunes. Today's topic is what makes a good argument? Why do people believe some things, and disbelieve other arguments. Kirk, we've got a great show. Let's do a quote of the day. This one I wrote down. I liked it. I heard it on a radio show last week. It's a quote from Robert Cole, who's a psychology professor at Harvard, talking about ethics. He says, all writings on ethics over the past 2,000 years are simply footnotes to the Sermon on the Mount. So that's a great quote. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. I've got a news item. This is really interesting. This came from an article by a biologist by the name of Douglas Axe. It's a study called The Limit of Complex Adaptation. And this was recently published in the journal Biocomplexity, which is a peer-reviewed science journal. Now, this might be a little bit complex. I'll just read the paragraph here, but I think we can break it down for people to understand, but it's really interesting. It has to do with recent population genetics work, and it shows that complex adaptational features that require two or more maladaptive mutations, or if they require six or more neutral mutations, is unlikely to arise in the history of the Earth. Wow. So, yeah. That's this not is, good this news is for evolutionists, news. is it? Yeah, this is really important. And so this, this is not in like a Christian publication or whatever. This is in a, a scientific publication. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's a science journal, Biocomplexity. Wow. So let's break this down for people so they can understand what, what this means. It's population genetics work. So basically what they're studying is in a population of an organism, how long will it take for new features to be added so that that population starts to change into a different type of animal. Right. Okay? So, we know we've mentioned on past shows that there's different types of mutations. Most of them are what they call neutral. Okay? It doesn't do anything. Right. A lot of that has to do with the fact that the DNA is backed up, so there are redundant systems within DNA. But for whatever reason, most mutations are not going to have any effect on the next generation. Because then, the, the DNA is set up to protect itself from, from major changes. Is that right? Exactly. That's okay. right. Okay. Then the, the next category is going to be maladaptive mutations. Okay. The next most frequent is going to be maladaptive. You get a mutation and it does something bad to the organism, reduces their survival rates, and those adaptations are usually done away with because usually the organisms don't survive 
to reproduce. So it's eventually that dies off. Right. Then there are beneficial, and these are extremely rare. In fact, almost all of the beneficial mutations that they find are actually instances when something gets broken and that just coincidentally happens to be beneficial to that organism at that particular time. Right. So what happens is, though, you can't just have one mutation because one mutation isn't enough for anything to happen. You've got to have, if you're going to build something new, you have to have entire new genes. And it's like if you have a, a set of Legos, if you have one Lego, that doesn't do you a whole lot of good. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If you want to build, you want to turn your Lego car into a Lego plane, you've got to have new Lego pieces. Right. So, and a lot of them. <laughs> their study showed that new features, for instance, a new fold for an amino acid, okay? So even taking an existing amino acid chain and folding it in a different way to make a different type of protein or to create a new function for an existing fold that each of these requires more than two maladaptive mutations or more than six neutral mutations. Right. Okay. Now that's just to get one new feature. Okay. One new protein. If you want a new metabolic pathway or some other type of more advanced where Different features are combined to make, let's say, a molecular machine or some kind of chemical or hormonal pathway for an organism. Those require between five and six completely new proteins. So this is immensely larger than what we're talking about, simply a different fold in an amino acid chain. And every time that you require something new, the waiting times increase exponentially. So, in other words, there's a random chance that you're going to get a certain mutation. Then you need another mutation. So, you have to wait for that mutation to come along. Then you need another mutation. You have to wait for that one. And each time you have to wait, it takes longer and longer to get where you're going. Right. So, what they were able to determine is that if you have something that requires only two or more maladaptive mutations or six or more neutral mutations, that those are unlikely to arise in the entire history of the Earth. So for the billions of years that the Earth has existed, it's still not enough time to create even one adaptational feature that adds something new, some kind of new metabolic pathway or new molecular machine. So if you're talking about a dinosaur evolving into a mammal, the odds are almost astronomic are astronomically impossible for that Correct. kind of a change to happen. That's right. Because and you have to have so many little individual changes to even start on the way to doing that. It's like the probability rate goes off the scale. Absolutely. That's right. And this joins many other population genetic studies where they've done kind of done the math, basically, to try to calculate how long does it take for genetic changes to take hold in a species. Right. It's just so long that it's not even possible. So so what's the, is there been a reaction from, like, uh, the evolutionary community to this at all, or? Uh, if there is, I don't know what it is. I would imagine I that they're going to say. can't they're too happy with it. <laughs> Uh, Right. I would imagine they're going to say that uh, it was done wrong. (laughs) 
So just like okay. they've done. Oh, that's a great uh, argument. <laughs> just like they've done to all the previous similar studies. Wow, that's amazing. And maybe we'll talk about some of those reasons when we get to the topic today on critical thinking and right. why some arguments win and others don't. Because I'm right and you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> all right, we got another news item. Kirk, you want to talk about the uh, textbooks? Yes, this is uh, kind of disturbing here. I've been reading this. We have a little report here from a Mr. Eric Buer, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, who uh, has an organization called Gateways to Better Education that's located in Lake Forest, California. And the report that he issued here on the Internet is called Islam in Our Schools. And it's basically dealing with how Islam is referenced in a lot of our modern school textbooks. Uh, and it says that this kind of thing is gaining some attention now, especially with Peter King's hearings in Washington, D.C. right now on, on radical Muslims in the United States. Um, but this is pretty disturbing stuff here as I re read through it. Yeah, um, I thought so too. Yeah. Uh, it starts out here by saying that this past fall, the Texas State Board of Education, and of course that's one of the major boards of education in the country that often influences what happens in other states. Right. They passed a resolution last fall against pro-Islamic anti-Christian bias in textbooks. And then they give some examples in this report of some of the bias that they're talking about here. And this is really uh, disturbing yeah. stuff. Yeah, let's do. Let's tell tell people some of the examples. Yeah, uh, one of the examples is uh, it cited a book called World History: Patterns of Interaction that's used right now in Texas high schools. It says here that the textbook is teaching students about the Crusaders' massacre of Muslims at Jerusalem in uh, the year 1099, but then it completely censors. Uh, mention of the Muslims' massacres of Christians in Jerusalem in both 12, well, in 1244 and at Antioch in 1268. Right. And yeah, so they, they put in the Christian massacre, but they leave out the Muslim massacre. Right. They conveniently leave, you know, a couple examples out. Mm -hmm. And then another textbook called World History Connections to Today, published by Prentice, which is a major textbook publisher, it says it described Crusaders' massacres of European Jews but didn't mention the Muslims' massacre of perhaps 90,000 fellow Muslims at Baghdad in 1401 and of perhaps 100,000 Indian POWs at Delhi in 1398. Wow. Now, that's really selective reporting there. Yep. How you about... Okay, we can, say, we can go on here. We have a couple yeah. more examples. In a report published by an organization, organization called Act for America, called Islam in America's Classrooms, History, or Propaganda, the authors of that study cite a number of other examples of pro-Islamic textbook bias. Uh, here's a little quote from their report. It says, In many instances, when talking about historical facts of Christianity, such as Jesus' crucifixion, disclaimers state Christians believe, implying an absence of credibility or, or historical evidence. Mm. While the myths, stories, legends, and claims of Islam are presented as facts. In another textbook called Holt World History, one reads that Moses claimed to receive the Ten Commandments from God, but it also says Mohammed simply received the Koran from God. Right. It doesn't in, in say, one, you know, yeah. he may one, have... It, right. it, it doesn't give any, um, you know, Mohammed believed he received the Koran. It says he did. 
Right. So it's just yeah, so the, kind of little minor word games that kind of tend to make the reader discount the Christian beliefs while accepting the Islamic beliefs as historical facts. Yeah, a clear bias. Yeah. Not treating the two examples in a similar way. Right. Okay, uh, we could go on here. Uh, there's some other studies. The American Textbook Council has issued a report entitled Islam in the Classroom, What the Textbooks Tell Us. Yeah, uh, read that quote from about the seventh grade textbooks. That's scary. Yes. Uh, the report's author, a Mr. Seawall, writes, While seventh grade textbooks describe Islam in glowing language, they portray Christianity in a harsh light. Students encounter a startling contrast. Islam is featured as a model of interfaith tolerance, but Christians wage wars of aggression and kill Jews. Islam provides models of harmony and civilization. Yeah, amazing. That's Well, incredible. I tell you, parents have to be careful when you're sending your kids to public school. You have to recognize that there's the potential for this kind of biased education. It's really a shame. Yep. And uh, it mentions a couple of websites down at the bottom here, such as Islam in America's Classrooms, Islam in the Classroom, the Texas State Board of Education Resolution website, where you can go and read these reports in more detail and the evidence that's backing them up. Yeah, I tell you, I have a couple of kids in a youth group that I talk to on a regular basis, and the things they tell me about some of the things that the teachers claim and tell them in school, it's really scary. It's like we're moving instead of just a post-Christian worldview and culture, we're moving into an anti-Christian worldview. It's really, right. really shocking some of the things that these kids tell me they're being told by teachers. It's, uh, and they're twisting the, the actual about facts it, in order to do it. The things right. that they're saying aren't even accurate. Yep. All right. Well, let's move on to other things where we got a couple of emails one from a, a fan by the name of Stormbringer, who emailed, who says, Dear Keith and Kirk. And then he gives a paragraph where he mimics some hate mail from an atheist. <laughs> so apparently he has a ministry where he dialogues with atheists online, and he runs into the same kinds of things that we do. Yeah. Then he says, Okay, count the fallacies. I have had remarks said to me that are quite similar, and frankly, it gets tiresome. I have tried to engage atheists, those lovers of reason and logic, and have demonstrated conclusively where their reasoning processes are lacking, and they still cannot see it. I really like the latest podcast about the logical fallacies, as you may have guessed. One atheist I know has based most of his entire weblog on ad hominem attacks. He does not want to discuss. He would rather mock, hurt, and humiliate. Do you get much of that, he huh. asks. <laughs> and a one-word answer, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah, we. Uh, I, I tell you, when we have debated atheists, the hate mail comes out of the woodwork. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Not defenses, not people saying, well, not that we don't get those too. I mean, we do get some defenses. We do get some people who try to argue the, ca the case, but we yeah, also we, get We get just, some fairly reasonable emails, but we yep. get some really nasty ones too that really yeah, have... Yeah, just pure hatred. Right. So I think actually, Kirk, you may not have seen some of the ones. I don't even pass them on when they're really bad. So I'm glad you where don't. We get, <laughs> yeah, where we get called the devil and liar, liar, liar. <laughs> 
it's stuff like that. Liar, liar, <laughs> pants on fire. Huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Our listener continues. He says, I listen to your podcast during mindless, repetitive data entry work, and it was difficult to refrain from shouting, yeah, a few times and distressing my coworkers. You were using the term fundamentalist as an example of using loaded terms, and I did something very similar in my weblog, A Soldier for Jesus. And then he gives the link. So I've been to that website. It's, uh, it looks good. By the way, I was labeled a fundamentalist and also a fundy. I told one guy that I was not a fundamentalist in the current sense of the word and was told that, yes, I am, despite what I said. But then this character also insults atheists by telling them how to conduct their unbelief. He continues, uh, one item that may be worth addressing is that you can be subjected to several errors in one or two sentences, like the taunt that I opened with, and some errors overlap. So he's referring back to the previous podcast where we've done logical fallacies, and that's quite true. Some of the logical fallacies are very similar to each other. So in a statement, you can make several logical fallacies at the same time. Oh, sure. Yeah, so, so that's true, and we didn't talk about that during the podcast. So he says, now I have a question. How do you deal with dismissal or simply being called a liar? I can make a statement and be told, that's just not true. It is one thing to make a mistake, but to have a series of statements or an entire argument dismissed because it appears that my opponent simply does not like it. So what do you think, <laughs> Kirk? What's a good answer to that? How do you deal with dismissal simply just being called a name or just being said, that's not true? Well, that's that's a tough thing to deal with, but um, slowly learning that really when you get a response like that, probably the best thing is to say, okay, and turn around and walk away. Yeah, they're they're not really progressing the, the discussion any further, right? It, if not you try saying, to get into an argument with them or try to reason with them when they have an attitude like that, you just get sucked deeper and deeper into an argument that, that really you can't win, no matter what kind of evidence you have on your side. Yeah, especially with the name-calling. That's quite true. Yeah. So, yeah, it, And then if know, they, they this, just claim that something's not true... You know, that's a naked assertion. You have to back it up. It, you know, it doesn't progress the discussion any further to simply countermand whatever the person says. Sure. Well, so. I guess uh, it makes some people feel better emotionally to do that, but it doesn't really uh, contribute to a rational argument very much. That's right. Well, we've got time to do one more email. This is from an atheist listener by the name of Peter. He says, I understand that you must receive an overwhelming amount of emails, which is true, and I would be surprised if you were able to respond to this, or I would, oh yeah, he does say, and I would be surprised if you were able to respond to this. Okay, so I guess he thinks he's giving us something that we can't respond to. So he says, nevertheless, I would like to give this a try. I've listened to a good amount of your podcasts and feel that you might be willing to respond. The most basic Christian theology is that we have all sinned, both great and small, and even our little sins are great before God. And Jesus never sinned, and so was the perfect sacrifice. There is one big concern that I have with this idea, and I cannot seem to find a response to it. Did you get a chance to read this email, Kirk? Yes, I did. Yeah. What do you think? It sounds I, I like an he, honest, he's asking an honest question. I think he is, yes. I think he really he, wants a, a, an honest, good answer to this. 
Yeah. He says, I have written to a number of Ask a Christian websites and podcasts, but none of them have responded to me, which, I, which has been quite frustrating. This is one of the reasons that I find a little hard to believe that that's true, but we'll, for what it's worth, as I am honestly looking for an answer to this question. I understand you are likely overwhelmed with mail, but I would great, be grateful for an answer to this question. I cannot seem to get one. Okay, so he says, it seems to me that there's a problem with God holding us to such impossible standards that these standards, by these standards, even Jesus was not perfect. So, rather than read all the things, he's basically accusing Jesus of breaking some of the Ten Commandments. Then he also questions the verse in Hebrews 4.14, where it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. So, he's really combining a couple of questions in here all together. Here's one of the th- things that I think is silly. He accuses Jesus of stealing grain in Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, it describes Jesus walking through a grain field and some of the disciples take some grain. It specifically omits Jesus doing anything of, of, the, of the kind so, I'm not sure where he gets that from, but maybe it's guilt by association or something. But anyways, you know, some of these are really flimsy accusations against Jesus. Right. So, he says, so this theology is left with a paradox. If Jesus is tempted in every way, just as we are, then he had sinful thoughts and could not have been the perfect sacrifice. Okay. So, you get where he's going. Right. So, you know, this one's in other words, on the one hand, he's saying, well, he has to be perfect in order to be a substitute for us. But on the other hand, if he empathizes with all of our temptations, then he must have given in to some of them and therefore couldn't be perfect. So, which one is it, he's asking. Right, exactly. So, he has this paradox. And the funny thing is that I, this isn't any big secret. You know, I mean, I, I've heard this in sermons uh, many times. So, you know, it's, uh, it's about this issue of how could Jesus have been tempted? Right. So, Or is re- just thinking something a sin? Right. That's not a sin. Yeah, he seems to think that if you're tempted, that that's a sin. Right. Yeah, I, so, yeah, I got the impression he's not seeing the dividing line between a temptation and, and sinning in response to that temptation. He's equating both as kind of the same thing. Right. Well, here's how I responded. I said, Dear Peter, thanks for your great question. I'm a little surprised that you have not heard the answer to this before since it has been a regular part of the teaching I have had at several different churches. C.S. Lewis also addressed this question in his book, Mere Christianity, and I believe G.K. Chesterton also addressed it. I cannot think of a single Christian leader who would make the statement, quote, thoughts are sins, close quote, as you did. Rather, they would say, sinful thoughts are sins. And they would also say, thinking about sin is not sin. So, this is where your paradox is arising. Temptations are not sins. It is what you do with the temptation. If you reject the temptation, you haven't sinned. Right. If you succumb to the temptation, then you will sin. Right. And this is actually, I could have looked up, there's a verse that actually describes this as a step-by-step process. I could have put that in here, but... I go on to say, I think Chesterton describes it as, you cannot prevent birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Right. So, it's a, just a good way to think about temptations. <laughs> so, Of course, the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way, the way we are, but it says he never gave in to the temptation. Right. Which is what separates him from us. 
Now, I've actually heard a a counter-argument based on that. I've heard people say, well, then if Jesus didn't give in to anything, well, duh, he's God, so of course he's not going to give in to anything, which means, you know, he's not... He's not really representative of us because we sin and he can't sin. Right. But yeah. The now response. The way, well, yeah. I've heard a response to that, but go ahead. Oh, go no. Let me hear yours because I've I've got one that C.S. Lewis mentions. Well, the response that I've heard, and I, if I'm correct, I believe C.S. Lewis also addressed this, and his his response was, "Well, you know, that's why Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for us because he is God. He is perfect." And that makes him capable of saving us. If he was exactly like we are, meaning if he sinned the same way we do, he would no longer be an adequate sacrifice. And exactly. C.S. Yeah. Lewis's, you know, response to that idea is how is that unfair? You know, that he's suited to be our savior because he is perfect. You're saying, well, that's unfair because then he's not like us. And and that right. really doesn't hold water. That's right. And he gave the example of a man who is drowning in a river and he's passing by and he looks up ahead and there's somebody who has his foot on the bank. He's partly in the river and he's partly on the bank of the river and he's reaching out his hand to grab a hold of the person and save them. Right. Now, would it be sensible for the person into the river in the river to say, "Hey, that's not fair. You've still got one foot on the ground." Right. <laughs> well, Gee, that's the whole reason that he's able to be your savior. Right. So that's exact. That's a good example. Let me finish out my the email here. I say, as to your accusations against Jesus, I am positive that you yourself could knock holes in your own arguments. So I don't even address them because they're pretty silly ones. Well, one of the things he mentioned was um, Jesus being angry when he threw the money changers out of the temple, and he said, right. "Isn't being angry a sin?" And not according to the Bible, because the Bible does tell us in one place to be angry, righteously angry at certain things, but do not sin. Right. So it is possible to be angry, but not sin in doing it. Right. And Jesus was obviously angry about how the Pharisees were oppressing the poor by ripping them off. He was righteously angry, as the Bible describes it. And there's a difference. So... I say, I continue, as to whether Jesus was tempted as we are, no one thinks this means in exactly the same way as every sinner has ever been tempted by sin. Would Jesus have to get hooked on heroin to experience what it is like to want the next fix? Right. Yet it can still be true that he, quote, has been tempted in every way just as we are, close quote. Right. Jesus had opportunity to sin, he was offered the chance to sin, and he was constantly provoked to sin. But he did not. Right. Okay, that's so that's the mailbag for today. That's what today. makes we him get, a perfect savior, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, we get a lot more email than we could possibly talk about in the show. So sorry to those emailers that we don't have the opportunity to read your email on the, the show. But, but keep them continue. coming and we'll do our best. There you go. Especially if you have an honest question. Sure. If you're just joining us, you are listening to... Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. And I'm Kirk Hastings. And we're talking today about what makes a good argument. Why do people believe the things they do? If you'd like to join in the conversation, you can email us at email at evidenceforfaith.com. All right. So what makes a good argument? Well, this material... Do you know the Jerry Springer show? 
Oh, yeah, there you go. A little <laughs> chair throwing. That would be good. We should yeah. do that, too. There's lots of good arguments on there. <laughs> yeah. Ask ask our great sound engineer, Josh, if he can do some sound effects of some chair throwing. That would be great. <laughs> no, he uh, says, we'll, I don't have that. <laughs> all right. He could pound the wall or something, I guess. So what makes a good argument comes from a book by James Sire called Why Good Arguments Often Fail. And I recommend any book by James Sire. He has he's a terrific author. There's a really good one that he's most famous for called The Universe Next Door. So that talks about all the different worldviews and how they, they compare with each other. And it's used in both religious and secular classrooms to discuss differing worldviews. How do you pronounce? Uh, how do you spell that for internet purposes? Is it S I R E? It is James Sire. Okay, so if anybody Google's him, they should find plenty of material. Exactly. Yeah, and get his books, especially the Universe Next Door. That's a great one. Well, a good argument. Okay, first of all, it has to have true premises. Okay, true facts. What are premises? Premises are the starting blocks. They're the building blocks of a deductive argument. Okay. So you need to claim something. You need to something, and the premise will be a fact or, or something that you know. So let's say Socrates is a man. Okay. All right. So that's, that'd be an example of a premise. Okay. Maybe another premise would be all men are mortal. Okay. Okay. So given those two premises, we can now figure out that Socrates is mortal. But if those premises are not true, then your argument's going to collapse. Right. Okay. Like if your premise is, is red really blue? That's not right. a good starting point for not, an argument. <laughs> right. Yeah, you can't start out with a, a false claim. Right. Okay. Or a contradictory claim. Right. Like who who created God, right? Right, that's now, a good one. the whole one. question is, is wrong. Right. <laughs> okay. Um, next... No fallacies. Now, we spent two shows doing a bunch of different logical fallacies. We did some of the most popular ones, some of the ones that happen all the time, the ones that you hear. Right. But there's really hun hundreds of them. Right. Oh, yeah, if not thousands. Yeah. So, so you have to make sure that you're not giving a fallacious argument or the, the argument that you're hearing doesn't have fallacies in it. Like, for instance, one of the ones we mentioned was all wars are the result of religion. <laughs> Right. All right, so doesn't have fallacies, got true premises. Uh, another thing that makes an argument good is if it has a large amount of evidence. Okay. So, and this is the idea of building a cumulative case. So it's not enough just to have one or two arguments that God exists, for instance. If you have multiple evidences and they all are different, then they build together to create a cumulative case. Right. This is the same kind of thing that a lawyer is going to do in a court case. Exactly. He's trying to, yeah, he's trying to prove that somebody's guilty or try to prove that somebody's innocent. Right. Like putting the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle together. Right. He's going to try to give as much evidence as he can. All right. The next step is that a, a good argument answers objections. So it's best if the argument kind of predicts what kind of objections people are going to give and includes it into the into the argument. Right. So if there's something obvious about why this chain of reasoning can't be true, then you should somehow address that or the argument ought to address it. Otherwise, 
people will see through that. You know, they'll they'll see the objection and then the argument's not going to be as convincing because you've got a bunch of people who are thinking, well, what about, you know, this other thing? Right. You ever been on a, a jury before, Kirk? Um, no, I haven't. I've been called a couple of times, but I never actually made it onto a case. Okay. Well, I've been on a couple. One of them was a attempted murder charge. And it's funny, you get the prosecution will get up and they'll tell you all the evidences. And, you know, there'll be these glaring holes in the, the storyline, basically. So there'll be these objections and then prosecution will come along and they'll give their evidence. And now you've got two sets of evidences, right. but there's these places where they don't mesh and things. You've got all these objections, but in the, at least in the times that I've been on a jury, a lot of times those objections were never addressed. Really? You know, they were just left empty. And that makes it really confusing for people. And it was very confusing when we got into deliberations and just didn't know what to make of some of the things that, that we were presented with. If you have good lawyers in a case, shouldn't they be cross-examining the other side to expose those errors? Yeah, well, you'd hope they would, and you'd hope that they would see. But I guess, you know, maybe it's just not possible to think of all the possible objections that people might have. Right. Otherwise, court cases would take, you know, 10 times longer than they do now. And they take a long time now. <laughs> yes, they do. All right, then your argument in order to be good, has to draw a valid conclusion. Okay. All right. So, you know, if Socrates is a man, all men are mortal, then Socrates is mortal. That would be a valid conclusion. So the, and a, a lot of this comes, the valid conclusion comes from the structure of the argument itself has to be in a, in a logical form. Right. It has to be a logical conclusion. Right. So, so you've got to draw a valid conf- conclusion. Then... One of the things about good arguments is that you can have a good argument. You know, you can have true premises, you can have a correct structure and draw a valid conclusion, but for some reason they still don't persuade a person. Okay. They still, or maybe if you're explaining this to a group of people, maybe you only get a few people to believe what you're saying. Right. So the crucial thing that's missing here is that the argument's got to be convincing. Right. So for to have a really good argument, you have to be able to convince people. And What's amazing, a lot of times, yeah, it, it's amazing. And and you know, court cases that I've seen on TV and that type of thing, when the uh, prosecution gets up and gives their version of the story, sometimes they're really convincing. And you're like, oh wow, I mean, this guy's obviously guilty. I mean, it's an open and shut case. But then the defense gets up and gives his story. And then all of a sudden, sometimes it's like, oh, wow, that makes a lot of sense, too. And then you're not quite as sure as you were when you just heard the one side. Then suddenly there's another side, and that kind of makes sense, too. And that makes it more complicated. Right. Absolutely. But even even a very logical, consistent argument, a lot of times it just, you know, falls on deaf ears. Right. So sometimes we have to consider the psychology of people. We have to consider things that are really important to people. And a lot of times, logical arguments just aren't that important to people. They're, they're more concerned with other issues. I heard William Lane Craig on one of his podcasts talk about some of the different arguments that there are for the existence of God. And one of the things he mentioned is that the moral argument is a much more convincing argument 
because it appeals to where people are. Right. People constantly are dealing with things like suffering and pain in their lives. Moral and questions. So, exactly. So this approach, uh, and that actually was the argument that caused me to become a Christian uh, also. That, that was one of C.S. Lewis's major arguments, too. That's right. It's it, in ch- chapter one, I believe, or chapter two of this book, Mere Christianity. And yeah. that was the book I was reading and uh, heard the moral argument and was convinced by the logical coherence of it and the appeal to the real world, how it made a lot of sense of the real world. That was uh, one of the arguments that really started me on the way to believing yep. there was something to this stuff. So, and that would say, compare that to maybe the ontological argument, which if you don't know what it is, don't worry about it. If you do know what it is, the ontological argument, you'll probably agree with me. That one, you know, it may be tightly woven, it may be very logical, but it's just not very convincing. Most people hear that one and they go, what? That sounds like a semantical argument. Sounds like it's just twisting logic, but right. actually they can't a lot relate of very, to it necessarily. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing to relate to it. You don't, it's, it's so metaphysical that you just, you know, can't really hang anything on it like you can the moral argument. You can think every day of things that happen when people slight you and things like that and the kinds of moral issues that happen to you every day. Right. <laughs> so, let's get more into the kinds of reasons that people then will believe things. Why do people believe some arguments rather than others? They might even believe a bad argument. Some of the things, some of the arguments that break some of these rules that we talked about, and yet they'll still believe it. Yep. If you're, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. I'm Kirk Hastings. So, why is it that people believe things and disbelieve other things? Okay, there's quite a few of them here. Yeah, let's let's get into this. Okay. How about a prior commitment to a view that truth is relative? Yeah, we've talked about that in the past. Well, that's a popular one today. Yeah, if truth is relative, you know, the kids are getting taught postmodernism a lot. Now, what I didn't well, know until relatively recently was this, this whole idea that truth is relative uh, really came basically from the Hindu religion, which yeah. teaches that. And when the Eastern religions got kind of popular in the 60s and the 70s, that's where people got this idea from, because that's one of the the, uh, things that Hinduism teaches. Mm -hmm. The yin-yang idea that you can have two sides to something, but they're both equally valid. Right. They can be true and false. Something can be true and false at the same time. Right. Have you ever tried to witness to a a Hindu or another Eastern religion? No, I haven't. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's really funny. I mean, they will like listen, 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 nod, yes, yes. Um, oh, that's terrific! And then it has absolutely zero response. You know, <laughs> there's absolutely no impact because to make a true statement to them doesn't mean anything. Right, because their response is, "Well, that may be true for you, but it's not uh-huh. for me." <laughs> that's right. That's right. So if you hold this kind of a logically inconsistent view, then it's really hard for you to believe, for instance, a a very logical argument. Right. Because you can also believe that the opposite of it is true. So why accept anything? It's very tough to talk to someone who believes that. Right. How about another reason why people believe things is if it benefits them, all right? Of course. Yeah, especially financially. If something benefits a person, 
they're much more likely <laughs> to believe that it's true. Ask any politician. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Or, you know, even a salesman, okay? Right. A salesman is <laughs> much more likely to believe that his product is the best than a competitor's product. Sure. And, you know, it just makes sense. The guy's making a living and he has to convince people that that product is true. It's much more likely that when he hears news about that product that's good, he's going to believe that. Sure. If he hears news about the product that's bad, he's not going to want to believe it. And so he's less likely to believe it. Right. I give, I give the example sometimes about in Christian circles when this can happen over the issue of tithing. Okay. All right. If you take a group of pastors and you ask them, is tithing or donating 10% of your income to the church, is that for New Testament Christians or is that a leftover from the Old Testament law? What do you think they're more likely to say? It probably depends on how economically healthy their church is. <laughs> Could it be? <laughs> uh huh. Well, even the fact that they're pastors and that they're livelihood in studies that have been done where they compared the beliefs of pastors about tithing, guess what? Most pastors believe that tithing is for today. Okay. But then if, if you compare that to the people in the pews of <laughs> non-denominational evangelical churches, what do you think they think? Don't tell me. They tend to lean the other way. <laughs> I think they do, since it's their pocketbook. Especially in these tough economic times. Well, I'm starting to think that tithing may be obsolete. That's an Old Testament thing that we don't have to do anymore. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, you know, and the important thing is to be aware that this kind of thing can happen. Sure. You know, so when you're doing Bible study and you come across a verse about tithing, you have to be aware that these kinds of things can be influencing your views and you have to try to set them aside. Yeah. And sometimes really, it's tough. It really is. Being human, you, you tend to be influenced by right. things like this, which can alter your viewpoint sometimes without you even realizing it. Right. That's exactly right. And that's why when we started the podcast, the radio shows that we're doing on critical thinking skills, you remember we talked about the fact that if something convinces you, if an argument convinces you that it's true, you have to be intellectually honest and go and find an argument that disagrees with you. Don't just accept something on its face value because right. you might be being influenced by some of the things that we're talking about. Right. And not realize that the argument that you're agreeing with is actually a bad argument. Yeah, I, like, right? I like what you told one of our uh, email writers a while ago was um, you told him to go and research the opposite point of view from the one that he was giving. And you told him, when you're able to come back and give me the opposite viewpoint from yours in a rational way, then I'll believe that you really understand both sides of the issue. Exactly right. And, and the reason you have to do that is because of these kinds of influences, these kinds of almost like subconscious influences that are going on. Right. Well, how about sociological reasons? That's probably a really big one. Oh, yeah. You know, if, if people are raised in an environment where everybody around you believes something's true, what do you think? Chances are you're going to believe that. More than likely. So examples of this would be things like your religious belief, 
Uh-huh. If you're raised in a Christian family, you're more likely to be Christian. If you're raised in an atheist family, you're more likely to be atheist. Right. If you're raised in a secular culture like ours, where television, newspapers, magazines, school classes, everything is secular, you're much more likely to be secular right. than you would be without those kinds of influences. Right. And the same thing could be said of other cultures around the world. If you're raised as a Hindu, then you're probably going to believe in Hinduism. If you're, you know, whatever, if you're raised in uh, France, you're probably going to believe the things that French people tend to believe. Right. You know, it's interesting about Muslims who have grown up in Muslim countries. When you meet them and get to talk to them, they are very open about talking about God and about religion. It's completely different than talking to the average American, where if you bring up something that is like a taboo topic, right? you know, you can't just at a cocktail party start talking about uh, something religious. You know, that's a, wow, boy, that's as bad as talking about politics. Right. But when well, you're talking to Muslims, they, they love talking about God and prayer and... Well, religion is part of their lives from the moment they're born, pretty much. That's right. So, it's a sociological influence Everybody they know talks openly about religion, right. or at least everybody that they knew overseas. Right. <laughs> so, and maybe everybody, if, if they have a tight-knit family and Muslim community here in the United States, again, same thing. It can be a lot of sociological influences. Right. And you have to take that into account. Mm-hmm. If you really want to understand things, you have to take that into account, that you may be being influenced by your upbringing That's to right. see things a certain way, and that way may not necessarily be accurate. Right. So it's good to, you know, read <clears throat> philosophical works from people from other cultures, for example, right. as, as a comparison. Right. You know, read Confucius, uh, see what he has to say. Uh-huh. Well, one that's related to that is peer pressure. Okay? That's another biggie. Yeah, peer pressure. I mean, you know, if you're a parent, that's one of your big concerns. Right. It's a big one among teenagers. Absolutely. They want to fit in with the crowd. Yep. You know, kids, and it's funny, you know, you you notice that kids will all dress alike. They all want to, you know, have cell phones. They all want to do what the rest of the kids that they're growing up with, that they're around all the time, are doing. Right. And that's another natural human instinct is to be like the people around you. And so, we don't realize that we're being pressured this way. Right. And sometimes that pressure means that you believe something is true versus something else. And even rebels in our society do it. They tend to adopt all of the viewpoints of the other rebels. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Whatever group or clique that you're in that you want to belong to, you tend to adopt their beliefs. Right. There, there's a really good study that was done many years ago where they had – they took a group of people, 10 people, nine of them were actors, and then they would study the response of the 10th person. And what they do is they'd take them into a room and they'd show them two lines that had been drawn on a blackboard, and the two lines were different links. Then they'd ask the people, the first nine who were actors, are those lines the same length? Well, they were obviously different links, but each person said, yes, they're the same length. What do you think the 10th person who was being studied said? I think I can guess. (laughs) Yeah, they said they were the same length. Right. And if they changed the study a little bit and had only one of the nine persons disagree and say that, no, the lines are different lengths, 
then that tenth person was much more likely to say that, okay, there really is different lengths. Right. Well, I think so, we're running out of time here. We are. We'll have to sign off for today, and we'll come back next week with more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. That was the-